Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. All right, so today's article is Creation and the Calling of Human Beings. So creation was kind of split into two articles in the Mennonite Confession of Faith from 94. So this is in particular focused on our calling as humanity. In late fall 1647, Church of England, Church of Scotland, they get together to formulate a monumental achievement which was entitled the Westminster Catechism. Some of you may be familiar with this. It took quite a few years to develop. Uh, but if you're unfamiliar with what a catechism is, it's a tool that the church has utilized basically to instill sound docti- uh, sound, install sound doctrine into younger generations. Pass it on, pass on the faith. In some traditions, children are instructed in the catechism basically early elementary, if not younger, and some of them have to memorize the catechism. Uh, I did this with some of my youth prior. Uh, We memorized a certain catechism at different points when I was a youth pastor. Um, You have to do this in order to be baptized, receive First Communion, become a member, things of that sort. Uh, It's it's often entailed that you have a good understanding of sound theology. That's where some church traditions take this. Now, the format of Westminster, the Westminster Catechism, like many other catechisms, is in a question-answer format. And so, think of this format almost like uh, if you go on a company's website. They've got a frequently asked question si- uh, page on their website. Or sometimes, if more like a handheld document, they may have an FAQ. And it's questions that are common so that you are able to understand the identity, the core uh, views and values of that company, and, and even how they operate, potentially. So similarly, a catechism like this can function to some extent like that. Well, the first question, you may be familiar with the first question. It reads, what is the chief end of man? Have we heard this question before? Some? Okay. It's an odd question. I don't know that, I don't know about you, but I've never had someone be like, what is the chief end of man? It's just kind of an interesting way to frame something. For us, in other words, the catechism is beginning by asking, what's the purpose of humanity? Why are we here? What is our function? Why do we exist? For some, the question may be, is there a reason why we're here? Is there meaning to life? Is there purpose to our existence? Or as some have concluded, is this all just an accident? So drink up, live free, don't let troubles of life get you down because it'll all be over soon. And the church's answer was striking. The answer on the screen, it says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. They claim that humanity's purpose is to glorify God arguably by enjoying Him. If you look at Romans 12, and it's going to be on the screen here, I'm just going to turn to it in a second. Paul, for 11 chapters, has summarized all that God's been doing through human history. And then he gets to this point of, okay, essentially, 
So what? What does this mean for us? He says, so, brothers and sisters, because of God's mercies, I encourage you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. This is your appropriate priestly service. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can figure out what God's will is, what is good and pleasing and mature. Now, the end of verse 1 here, I'm reading the Common English Bible. It says, appropriate priestly service. But a lot of your versions may say, the, the NRSV, for example, will say your reasonable act of worship. The NIV says your true and proper worship. Uh, the New Living Translation says this is truly the way to worship Him, by offering your body as a living sacrifice. For us who have chosen to follow Jesus, Paul is saying the entirety of our lives is to be worship. Not just songs. Uh, worship is much more than just music. It's to be the entirety of our lives. The way we live and work and play and love and consume and contribute is all worship of something or someone. We just may not always be cognizant of it, but it is. We are doing it for something or someone. Perhaps if you're like me, it's often for yourself. Or even when maybe um, it might be for others, but in that for others, you're still doing it to do it for yourself, to feel good that I did something for others. There's ulterior motives. But so to rephrase the question, is this the purpose of humanity? Is this our function? Is this why we exist? Worshiping God, laying down our lives for His sake, to worship Him in that manner. Well, we're going to walk through, that was loud, sorry. On one of uh, Bible Project's podcast series, uh, podcast episodes about the image of God, uh, the two guys, Tim Mackey and John Collins, they have this uh, good dialogue about what it means to image God. Because that's the passage we're utilizing here where it says God made humanity in his image. And they go back and forth, they're kind of hashing it out, what this actually means. And I'm just basically going to paraphrase, paraphrase their illustration because honestly I couldn't do it any better. Essentially they said, imagine that a friend of yours is a gardener, which, well, a friend of mine is a gardener. Um, and they're starting a garden project in their house, in their, in their backyard, or their side yard, whatever it may be. And perhaps they, they really got into gardening, they watched, they binged a whole series on Netflix, or you know, they, they watch some tutorial videos on YouTube for hours, and they're like, I can do this. I, I, I want to do this. This looks great. And so they start a gardening project. Now, news of this project, it kind of catches waves. You know, they talked about it at after church lunch, and some people are like, oh, wow, Joel's starting a gardening project. Cool. And uh, all of a sudden, people start inviting, yeah, let's go see Joel's gardening project. Let's go check it out. And we show up to the garden, and... Uh, we're like, oh my gosh, this is so great. It's looking so great. And we go every couple weeks, see, see the fruit of their work coming up. We bring a lawn chair. We bring some snacks. Maybe we start making shirts that say, like, go Joel. Joel's garden's awesome. Things like that. But we're just sitting on the side watching. We're seeing the gardening project. Now, John and Tim pointed out that if our primary purpose was simply to glorify God, 
we would observe and praise what God is doing in His garden project. Then when we go and do something else and take a break from praising God, God continues His work without us, just like Joel is still doing his gardening when we're not there cheering him on. But is that what we see in Genesis 1, in the passage before us? Rather than participating in God's gardening project or joining in with Joel, we would be bystanders. But this isn't what we see in Genesis 1. We're going to turn there and look at Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. Now, as you're turning there, if you are turning there, this can be the common view of how we uh, perceive and operate in the church world, right? I don't know about you, but when I was younger, I kind of thought um, I needed to bring my friends to my youth pastor or my college pastor. And when I graduated college, it was bring them to my pastor. I need to get them to church Sunday my non-Christian friends, because then that's the place. It's like as soon as they walk in, it's like this hub where they just get zapped, and it's like, oh, shoot, like now I'm going to believe in Jesus. Like there's something about here and about that pastor, and it's like, well, no, that's not how it works. That's not actually what the Genesis story tells us. We kind of had this perception in church that we can be the bystander, right? Observe and say thanks a lot. We can adopt this approach when relating to non-Christians who need our help. That if we invite them to church, that if they just meet our community, that if they just hear the right message, listen to the right songs, and so forth, that that should do it, right? And that's what I'm called to do, right? But do we see this? Do we see that the chief end of humanity is to observe and praise Do we come to the garden project with some folding chairs and popcorn? Or do we come with shovels and tools and do something different? Join in. Let's look at verse 26, chapter 1, Genesis. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image. Some of your translations may say mankind or man, uh, but the, uh, the author is really meaning all of humanity, it's, it's both. We know that because in the next verse he's going to say, male and female, we created them. Because some translations still translate it as um, male-dominated pronouns. But it's, it's humanity. God created humanity or humankind in his image. So he said, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things on the earth. So he says, create him in our image to resemble us. This was, and still is, a significant claim about the uniqueness of humanity. Old Testament theologian John Walton helps us understand more. He says, when God created people, he put them in charge of all his creation. He endowed them with his own image. In the ancient world, an image was believed to carry the essence of of that which it represented. So this is royal language. When God says we're making them in our image, this is our representation. Paul in the New Testament in Corinthians, he says we're his ambassadors. Some might even go as far as to say as we are kings and queens. We are co-heirs. There is this royalty to it that distinguishes us amongst others. There'll be some big ramifications for that as we go forward. C.S. Lewis, 
commented on the uniqueness of humanity. He said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. You've never talked to a mere mortal. There's nothing ordinary about him. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are all mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and even exploit. There are no ordinary people because of this passage. This is where the concept of human rights has come from. This is what goes in the face of many societies and cultures and and has for uh, human history, stating that all are worthy of dignity. There are no ordinary people. The author of Genesis, as well as the other writers of scriptures, are making this astounding claim that we are all image bearers. We are made in and therefore to reflect God's image. Now, this was our initial job description. This is what the author of Genesis is saying. Why? What for? God, God says, so that we may take charge of creation. That's what that passage says right there. At the end of 26, he says, why? So they may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things on earth. So it's saying all the animals and all of creation. It says all the earth. Now, the word there, mine says take charge. Uh, Some of yours may say rule over or reign over. And some might even say have dominion over. Now, each of these can have a really negative connotation. If someone were to say, like, hey, I I rule over you or I have dominion over you, I'm going to take charge over you, it's kind of like, whoa, hold on, what? Like, it's a little intrusive, maybe even violating. It just sounds almost inhumane, dehumanizing us. Now, each of these have that, but perhaps this could be because throughout human history, We've just had over and over again um, leaders who have overstepped their bounds. They've abused their position and power, perhaps also because we are somewhat self-aware deep down that if we ever were to have that power, we ourselves might abuse our position and power. Now, when I hear you're in charge, I picture like I remember as the younger sibling, when my parents would leave my older sibling in charge, it was like, okay, she's supposed to be stand-in for mom and dad while they're gone. She's in charge. Or maybe you picture, man, mom and dad are going away, and grandparents or aunt and uncle are watching the game. Who's in charge? Who is the stand-in for mom and dad now? Them. Or when the manager has the day off or is going on vacation, right, and the assistant manager or some other supervisor is in charge while they are away, that's, these are images that come to my mind. So when we hear this, take charge, it's taking place of, it is, here, take over, take the shovel, go bring this forward, I'm going away. Now in any of these scenarios, does this responsibility permit abuse, taking advantage of those whom we are in charge of? No. That's why I like the message, uh, the way they translate this, the reason for humanity being made in, in God's image and to image Him. Eugene Peterson translated it as, so that humanity can be responsible for. 
In other words, to steward or to guard, to tend and protect, to preserve, stand up for, even fight to lessen the damage. This is a, I have a couple commentaries from people in different continents just to get some global um, perspective of how they see this. Uh, this gal, she's from Southeast Asia. She, Lily Yin Chu Chong writes, We are to treat God's earth as God wants us to and not destroy it to satisfy our whims, greed, and selfishness. It is therefore the responsibility of every man and woman of God to be the harbinger of this urgent mission. Jesus' coming can bring salvation not only to humanity, but also to his cosmos. And similarly, this gentleman, I, can, I can't pronounce his name, I'm just going to say Mr. J. Um, he says, unfortunately, people have long misinterpreted this command as giving us the right to exploit nature for our own good without any regard for the rest of creation. The result has been deforestation, pollution of land, water, and sky, and the exploitation and extinction of animals. We need to pay attention to the teaching that we are, so, that we are called to be responsible and just stewards of God's creation. Keep going in verse 27. It says, God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. Notice that the image is not confined to one sex. The author is actually pointing out that in order to properly image God in creation, we need both. We need each other. We need male and female. John Goldengay, another Old Testament theologian, he writes on this significance. In Genesis 1, there's a structure of authority. It's pretty simple. God is the ultimate authority. God then delegates authority over creation to humanity, and women and men together are the means of exercising it. There's no suggestion in the creation stories that God designed the world to be a place where any human beings exercised authority over any others. Okay, before sin, before the fall... We're all on the same level. There was no authority to be exercised by men over women or husbands over wives. There were no masters and servants or slaves. There were no kings and subjects, and there were no emperors and underlings. Essentially, he's saying you know, racism, sexism, classism, nationalism, whatever it may be, these isms that divide us and demean and elevate other people, they have no place in the kingdom. We are all one. Now, are there differences of who we are and what that, those ingredients that make up who we are, the variances, the multinational, multi-ethnic, um, and so forth? Yes. It's what makes the kingdom so beautiful and diverse and this colorful, beautiful portrait of human history. But are they to be utilized as dividing factors? Excuses to mistreat, reason to see one another as one better than the other. No, that's why Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is part of what Jesus did in restoring, returning us back to the job description in Genesis 1, where He's bringing us back in line with the way it was initially made to be. Part of imaging God is seeing God's image in all of humanity. Treating all with dignity. It's 
that Lewis quote, there's no ordinary person. Do we see people this way? As a person in customer service, uh, in my other side job, bugs the heck out of me when someone's got an AirPod in or on their phone <laughs> or things like that when they're trying to talk to you. Oh, I wish I had the authority to say, I'm not going to help you until you're off. Uh, because it just feels condescending, right? Do we treat people that way? Do we give them our full attention, even for those couple minutes, treating them as image bearers, as worthy of dignity? The author continues in verse 28, said, God blessed them and said to them, be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and master it. Again, take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and everything crawling on the ground. Then God said, I now give to you all the plants on the earth that yield seeds and all the trees whose fruit produces its seeds within it. These will be your food. To all wildlife, to all the birds of the sky, and to everything crawling on the ground, to everything that breathes, I give all the green grasses for food. And that's what happened. God saw everything he had made, it was supremely good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. So, if someone were to ask you, based on this passage alone, why did God create humanity, what would your answer be? Would you describe our job description, our nature, as being more observatory or participatory? Are we to observe or participate? Are we bystanders or are we involved in the action? To return to the Bible Project's garden illustration, the scriptures begin with God as this royal artist that humans are, are made the pinnacle of creation and then given divine authority and responsibility to continue what God has been doing. So instead of pulling up a chair and some snacks, and cheering on God, God actually invites us to come take over the gardening project. Take responsibility for us. He'll guide and instruct us if we trust Him. What we really bring, what will really bring God joy is to let us come to maturity in taking responsibility, and then we go and expand it. So in the beginning of Scriptures, God isn't like, hey, I'm making humanity sing songs to me, gather on Sunday mornings, and like, serve meals to each other. Not saying those are bad, but that's not the Christian life solely. The Christian life is life. The life of a Christian. It's all of our life. It's all 168 hours of the week. It's not just confined to when we are in these four walls or hanging out with other people that we often see in these four walls. God says, take this work that I started and continue it, expand it, take responsibility for it, and represent me in the world. That's why it starts in a garden, and that's why the end of scriptures end in this giant, renewed, urban area. Yes, us country folks. Uh, <laughs> there's this beautiful tapestry that is created that humanity through God's Spirit has developed entire cultures and civilizations that are gathering together in this re renewed heaven and earth and it's this garden city. It's a mixture. And we're continuing that on. It, it, you know, in the end it doesn't seem to say that we're done working. It's just that the curse of work, the burden of it, where 
man, you're pulling weeds a couple of hours and you feel it for the next three days. Now that goes away. But the joy of joining in with our Father, joining in with our Maker in creating, in gardening, in carrying forth His goodness, that goes on. That's our job description. So, so, in summary, to return to the question that was before us this morning, what is the purpose of humanity? Why do we exist? What is our function? I wrote, we exist to image God, to rule and reign with Him, not to observe but to participate, not to be bystanders but to be actively involved, and to take responsibility for the human gardening project, to go and to expand it. And then the result, I think, is where the Westminster Catechism is correct. The result is we will glorify God in that and enjoy Him. That is a result of us living into that that role. We will glorify God when we image Him, when we seek to image and reflect Jesus in this world. We will enjoy God as we take that position seriously. As we see... Jesus for who He is, the original image of God, and continue to bring forth His goodness here and now. Now, Forrest, what what does this mean for us here and now? Residents of Dover, Philly, Strasbourg, um, surrounding cities, and as partners of LifeBridge, wrote three points, three potential application areas. First thing I want us to consider. One, see what God has already given you responsibility over today, right now. We all have something, even kids. We all have something that we have been entrusted to us to care for. Sometimes it's literally like physical items. Sometimes it's wealth. We all have bodies. We all have rooms and things of that sort, or a lot of us have rooms. But what has God entrusted to you? What relationships? Perhaps you're an employee or an employer. What has God entrusted to you? Perhaps you own different resources that God has given you, whether it be a home, a body, finances, car, computer, and so forth. These things are not just things. They are parts of your gardening life project. How can you use them to carry forth the kingdom? How are you utilizing them to image God in these different areas? So see what he's given you, and perhaps it may take some time to recalibrate. Maybe it's, man, my job, how do I see this as a way that God is, that I am imaging God through my vocation, or through my marital relationship, or familial relationship, or work relationship? How has God given me responsibility here? And then, number two, expand. Expand your view. See where you live, see where God has called you, and see beyond our safe community. Go outside the gates, as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13. Find ways to leave, you know, the Christians and the Anabaptist way has never been be safe, stay in the comforts. No, it's always been be willing to face the hostility even all the way to death for the sake of proclaiming Jesus, of imaging Him. 
of loving others even when they don't want our love or don't accept it. So expand your reach, expand your view. Where are you imaging God outside of your home and outside of your Christian community? I suspect it could be difficult for us, some of us here, especially in a very Christianized social culture, to be in regular relationship with people who don't follow Jesus, or even just straight up hate or don't think it's real or anything like that. I suspect that could be a potential thing. If that's where you're at, it's okay. It's healthy to admit where we're at. But we're called to go out. We do need to get out there. We can't we can't stay in here. That's why Hebrews 13 says, you know, so Jesus suffered outside the city gates. Therefore, let us go to him, for here we have no lasting city. We have no lasting church here. This isn't going to last forever. At some point this building will fall or something like that or or we'll all die at some point. You know, the metaphor is this isn't we're not just building life bridge, we're building the kingdom. We're building something that goes that will go beyond us. We're picking up shovels that were used before us for generations, and and eventually we'll lay ours down, and someone else will pick it up. But we're building for the kingdom. So where can you serve the least, the last, the lost in our cities, villages, communities, the people that are overlooked, misunderstood, outcasted, don't want anything to do with church and the way of Jesus? If we don't know people who don't know Jesus, we're just not going to spread his name. We're not going to spread the good news. So how do we practically do this? Um, some of us ask, I, I get this question quite a bit, where can I serve? I, I, I don't feel like I have a place in LifeBridge. In some ways, I'm like, well, that's good. Go find a place out there. This is kind of like our family reunion every Sunday, and it's to hype us up and, and you know, get us, refuel us, refuel the tank, But then we go out. Every week, I fill my gas tank once a week because I don't drive very much. But, you know, I don't hang out at the gas station. I'm not like, sweet, I got my gas. I'm hanging out here all week. No. I fill up my car, and then I go out everywhere. I'm not hanging out with other people who need gas all the time. No, no, no. The point is to refuel and then go do the 167 other hours somewhere else. Not with other people that are always... Sometimes it's together, like-minded, right? Jesus sends the disciples out two by two or or in different manners of that sort, small groups, doing life together in community, but they are in with the people. They are in these neighborhoods and shopping centers and, and things of that sort. And so if we are set up, perhaps some of us work in, I work in a Christian company. Uh, if you will, I'm the only employee, uh, technically. No, there's a couple if we count the threads employees. But still, I have to do work to go out of my way to befriend people in my village, in my community, or else, I just know Jesus followers, and what is that going to do? That's part of the main reason why I got a job at Chipotle, was just to meet people, because we didn't know any non-Christians here. Just to meet people. So, find ways. There's so many ways we can serve. If you need help, I'm in contact with the mayor of Dover. There are countless ways that you can volunteer. I mean, I know some of you guys serve every Thursday night at the food distribution center just down the road. Man, there's great ways, but find a way. Invest, commit to those people just to befriend them. That's how we start. That's how we take the garden further. If you need more help, 
getting creative, thinking through, man, how has God wired me, positioned me, giving me passions and skills to serve people in my community? Talk to me. I'd love to hash this out with you. But man, we are to go. We are to leave this place every Sunday afternoon and go image God elsewhere too. The last one. So the, the first two, see what he ha- he's already given you responsibility of. Two, expand the reach. Expand it. Expand your view. And three, um, somewhat confrontational in different American communities. Uh, don't just look at humanity. These passages are very much about all of creation. Humanity is the apex, yes. But God is renewing all creation. And the stewardship, the imaging, specifically says, says the earth, some of you are says all of creation. We see that in Colossians 1, that Jesus is... Well, let me read in Romans 8. Starting in verse 18, Paul writes, I believe that the present suffering is nothing compared to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. The whole creation waits breathless with anticipation for the revelation of God's sons and daughters. Creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. It was the choice of the one who subjected it, us. But in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from slavery to decay and brought into glorious freedom of God's children. Creation was a good place. It was, it, if you're unfamiliar, the Genesis 1-3 through 3 story, it's this temple that God is setting up on earth. He's setting up heaven on earth, this God's space where He can dwell with His people. It was beautiful. It was majestic. It had everything we needed. It had everything humanity needed. And we messed that up. And we're still messing it up. We think of how many thousands of species are gone, right? Or on the endangered species list, things like that. We weren't called to take advantage of them. We were called to take care of them, continue forth this project. So yes, this is, this is where you get into something called eco-theology. Uh, quite, a, quite a few seminaries are talking about this. Um, but yes, we are to be people who care for creation. We're, we're supposed to care for God's stuff. Um, it's kind of a weird thing, like, and it, here's an illustration that as I was trying to think this through. You know, some of us, we think, well, we mainly just need to care about people. Everything else doesn't matter. I don't think any of us would, like, buy an old house. It sort of needs some work. And we've got kids or something, or we've got people that are going to move in there. And we're like, I'm just going to devote all my time to the kids, and I don't care if the roof caves in or anything like that. I don't care about the actual dwelling place, the physical place. I just care about the people. I just need to make sure they're alive. Well, they're not going to be alive if the dwelling place crumbles. The project, we're we're, we're called to do both. And that's what Genesis 1 says. We are to image God in stewarding all these things. Taking care of our Father's stuff. I've used this illustration before too, but whenever my father would let me borrow something from his or bring it to show and tell, it was like, Oh my gosh, like I brought it in a separate box. It was careful. Don't, don't bump me on the bus. Like I don't want to mess it up. This is my dad's. I didn't want anyone to touch it because I wanted to get it back to dad because I knew this was my father's. I don't want to return it as good as he gave it to me. And, and sometimes if I messed it up or if I dropped it, oh my gosh, it was heartbreaking because this is my dad's. 
This place is our dad's. This place is our God's. We are to be most of all concerned for his dwelling place because this will, as we've been talking about on Thursdays nights, this will be God's dwelling place in the end. Heaven and earth will reunite. The kingdom will eventually come fully realized and God will dwell with his people again. Lastly, if you recall from a few weeks ago, our message on Jesus, Paul in Colossians 1, he says the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the one who is first over all creation. This is why we look to Jesus again. We were made in this image, Genesis 1. It got messed up, and for like 40 books, we kind of lost track as to what it meant to image God. And now Paul's saying Jesus is that new, perfect, restored image, that perfect representation. And we are to follow him, but I'm going to jump down to verse 19. He says, because of the fullness of God was pleased to live in him, and he reconciled all things to himself through him. Whether things on earth or in heaven, he brought peace through the blood of his cross. Notice it's all things. It's not just all people. It is not just people. Blows our mind. Doesn't really go with often some of our Sunday school understanding. But no, God is redeeming and his blood, his resurrection was for all things. He will renew all of his creation. How that looks, I don't entirely know. But we're called to carry on, live as Jesus in this world. Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus.